You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have a really interesting guest. Her name is Cass Nelson Dooley. Um, I encountered her because I'm reading her book, Heal Your Oral Microbiome. Uh, she's an MS. She studied medicinal plants in the rainforest of Panama, which is really cool. Uh, 2003, she was a Fulbright scholar, and she launched a career in science and natural medicine. She's uh, researched the pharmacology of medicinal plants at University of Georgia and Aptotech, Inc., and then joined the innovators at Metametrics Clinical Laboratory and Genova Diagnostics. Uh, she enjoys teaching and presenting and writing and researching how to address the underlying causes of disease, thankfully, instead of the symptoms. So, Cass, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today, Richard. Yeah, you've got a really interesting background. Uh, maybe we can start. Uh, what got you interested in, you know, studying medicinal plants? Because that's a pretty rare thing nowadays, it seems like. Yeah. Well, you know, um, my I, th- I think there's kind of a, you know, family roots in that. I think my my grandfather and my mom and I think really just my parents were always kind of interested in natural medicine. We, you know, just in my family, we kind of have this culture where we're a little bit reluctant. You know, we're we're always careful before um, getting into aggressive treatments. You know, and looking for more gentle treatments that and looking for underlying causes. You know, so there was that. Um, and, and you probably remember, uh, oh gosh, probably in the 90s. There was a lot of interest in medicinal plants, and I, you know, I particularly was interested in medicinal plants as uh, for drug discovery, for finding, you know, the um, the cure to cancer, basically, you know, looking for novel compounds from nature, uh, because there's nothing more, um, you know, kind of co- uh, complex and bioactive than things that come from nature, and uh, so I was really interested in looking for, uh, you know the next new drug that could potentially uh, cure a serious disease like like cancer. So uh, that's what got me into it. And um, I ended up in the rainforest of Panama studying medicinal plants. So it was, it was a blast. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you, did you study how like indigenous populations use them and, you know, like yeah. for, for hundreds of years? Tell me about that. Yeah, I sure did. So I was living on an island, um, Bastimentos Island off the coast of Panama. And this is on the Caribbean, uh, Caribbean side of Panama. So it, it was a little bit like doing research in paradise, you know. Uh, but I lived on an island where two different communities lived. There was an Afro-Caribbean community, which, you know, had, um, they were descendants from Jamaican immigrants. And then there was an indigenous group called the Ngabe Indians. 
And um, so I studied the medicinal plants that both communities, and they lived on the same island in different locations, but I, I was interested in the medicinal plants that both were using for common illnesses and um, comparing those. And one of the things I found out was that even though they lived on the same island, they were using totally different plants from one another. So it was really interesting. And, and of course, they had different medicine systems, too. You know, the the, uh, the indigenous people had more of like a, a shaman or a medicine man who was, in, you know, kind of controlled the medical knowledge. And the Afro-Caribbean community, it was more like everybody knew it. You know, the grandparents, the kids, you know, everybody in the community knew about medicinal plants. So it was it was a really fun yeah, and what are, um, experience. What are some examples of how they use medicinal plants? They, I mean, you know, in our culture, anyone has a sniffle, they'll try to get antibiotics. But what's an example or two of how these cultures would use plants and in what context? Yeah, well, the um, Afro-Caribbean, I mean, really the, the medicinal plants used in the um, Afro-Caribbean community was pretty impressive. You know, they had, I mean, really, there were many, many medicinal plants just kind of growing out of the sidewalk, growing at the sides of the houses. You know, like I said, little kids could name them you know, grandparents. I mean, there were me kind of medicine women who were recognized for having more knowledge than other people in the community. But um, so certainly, I mean, the most common is to make a tea, you know, to make a tea to like if you have a cold or if you um, have like a skin lesion, you know, like a um, sore, which is common in the tropics, <laughs> uh, then now, in that case, they might be making like a poultice from the, you know, like mashing up the plant and uh, applying it and bandaging it on. Um, you know, tea, tea is the most common. I mean, there was a lot of herbal tea, and I think it's actually kind of a nice lesson for all of us that what a, a healthy habit it is to drink herbal tea because it, it gets a lot of, um, you know, plant nutrients. And, and phytochemicals into our bodies easily, you know, just kind of sipping on herbal tea all day. Okay. So, so typically in these cultures, someone would be sick and would there be a medicine person or would the whole community know which plants to look for? And, and then they would what, make a tea or a poultice and the person would take that. And I mean, did you, did you literally observe this in action? You know, I hope you didn't, but maybe you got sick or someone <laughs> you saw was sick and some of them helped. Yeah. Well, the one of the medicines that I studied um, in depth was called um, the black drink. So this was kind of a specialty medicine. And it was um, so like, like, like you said, everybody in the community knew like the basic medicinal plants that could help get them well, you know, like in, in something common, like a cold like, um, you know, just like all, we might take vitamin C or, you know, do certain things when we get a cold or feel one coming on. That that was kind of like how their community was. But for special problems or really severe problems, then they would go to, um, I would say, I would call her like a medicine woman. Um, these were two, you know, kind of grandmother-like females in the community that really had a lot, like decades of knowledge about uh, medicine and plants. Um, and they were considered experts in the community. But one of the um, treatments that they used, was, uh, it was called black drink, and it was really for um, what they called low blood, which is the equivalent of like iron deficiency anemia. 
you know, pallid fingernails and pallid, uh, pallor and, um, you know, uh, fatigue and things like that. So they would, they would cook up this black drink that had a couple of herbs. It was, um, boiled with, um, uh, it, with broken cast iron pots in it. And so they would boil this mixture for a couple of days and it would come out like black <laughs> liquid. And I, you know, I observed, and I observed the cooking and everything, the preparations. And then they would have the person take it with a little bit of wine uh, as a treatment. And I took, you know, I was able to um, take a sample of it and analyze it back in the lab at the University of Georgia. And indeed, it was chock full of iron. So it was, and it was actually, treat, you know, potentially treating iron deficiency anemia, which is exactly what they were saying it was, you know, treating low blood uh, symptoms. And the herbs that they used in it were actually antiparasitic herbs. And that was relevant because, um, you know, having parasites can cause iron deficiency anemia. So it was a really interesting kind of uh, evidence, the evidence behind the folk medicine under, you know, kind of yeah, learning the pharmacology. Cool. Yeah. Learning the pharmacology and the evidence behind something that we, you know, some people might think of as just, you know, old wives tale, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, how are we supposed to reconcile plant medicine with, you know, Western medicine? It seems like Eastern medicine, they use plants quite a bit more. It just, I mean, I'm an outsider. I really don't know, but it just seems like it, but uh, how do you think this could be added into Western medicine, or is it two at odds, unfortunately? Well, I think they can be used together, definitely. Um, you know, I'm I work more in the integrative and functional medicine field, and so I work with a lot of clinicians who are using both. I mean, they might be using pharmaceuticals when it's you know when it's seriously a serious or grave situation where something very powerful is needed to intervene. And then they might be using herbs when they're trying to make kind of more uh, kind of gentle or holistic shifts in a person's health. So I do think they can be used together. I mean, I don't, you know, obviously the mainstream medical model, people who have been to, you know, a mainstream medical school and that haven't done any other, you know, um, training in integrative medicine or alternative op medicine or anything, they're they're not going to be too familiar with using herbs in practice. So, um, but I think we're going that direction. You know, I think Americans uh, and I, I'm I think it's all over the world, but certainly Americans. I mean, we there's a huge demand for more herbal medicine, for more nutritional medicine, and um, I think that's where we're going. I just, it's just not in every doctor's office yet. <laughs> well, I mean, from what I've been told, you know, big pharma, you know, at best, they'll try to isolate one compound from a plant's medicine and then patent that, you know, a more a molecule similar to that. And then that's the, the westernized version of it. But that's one, right. one interesting thing, you know, these plant medicines, you're not just getting compound X, you're getting a whole host of associated compounds with it. So, you know, I know it would make it hard to maybe figure out the specific compound that uh, that would be helping you, but would I don't know. What's your sense of what that does? All these other compounds besides the the ones supposedly that's doing the healing or doing the helping. What role do you do you think they have to play? 
Oh, no, I think that they have, I mean, you know, any any one plant can have hundreds or thousands of plant chemicals, and they work syner- they can work synergistically. So, I mean, yes, there might be one compound that's very uh, active, you know, that, that in a pharmaceutical might be an active ingredient, but um, there's that, but there's all of these other plant compounds as well that can be very, um, can have all kinds of act, uh, biological activity on us when we eat it, you know, just like food. They, it's like they're, they're, it's a package, you know, it's a package. It's not just a single isolated ingredient. So, um, you know, plant chemicals are, you know, they can't, I mean, some of the common things, the common biological activity is that they are, you know, anti-inflammatory or they are anti-cancer or they are antimicrobial because plants, you know, need these protections within them. They, they, they produce these chemicals to try to help protect them, right? Because a plant can't move like we can, they can't move away from danger. So they have to produce, uh, you know, compounds metabolites that will protect them from bacteria and fungus and parasites and harsh weather and all these things. So um, when we eat them, I mean, we can get a lot of beneficial, healthy effects. And so I think, you know, I I don't completely shoot down the approach of finding a single ingredient because sometimes you do need a single ingredient at really high doses to get um, a change for somebody. But I think if you can get away with using a, a lower dose, a more gentle dose with a, in, in that plant package, that's more like a whole food or more like a whole plant, then that's better for, that's, that's definitely better for your body. And they won't have the side yeah, effects know, likely. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking about, you know, like uh, metformin, it depletes your B12, for instance. And I know other drugs can cause depletions or changes in other, you know, constituents of our body. And I wonder if that's because they're not packaged with things that maybe they should be packaged with. Maybe that's what, for some reason, the plant just knows how to do. You know, if it, if it produces something, uh, it also produces the necessary adjuncts that will either feed the microbiome associated with processing that chemical in your body or prevent, um, you know, other biomarkers from being depleted. Maybe that comes with the medicine. Maybe it's smart enough that it again all of that is packaged in with the uh, the main ingredient somehow. Yeah, I mean, you know, plants need vitamins and minerals. You know, even though there's so many differences between us, you know, between animals and plants, I mean, we kind of run on a lot of the same fuel. We need a lot of the same building blocks in order to have a have life. You know, minerals amino acids, vitamins, all these things. So yeah, plants do have a lot of great nutrients in there that we can take advantage of. Um, and, you know, you're right that these, these, you know, pharmaceuticals, you know, I don't know particularly metformin, but it's very common that they deplete nutrients. Very, very common. So, um, and I, I don't know the mechanisms whereby that's happening, but when, if, if, if you're on pharmaceutical treatments, or, you know, as many people in our country, like a cocktail, like a couple, then you do have to really think about nutrient depletions. Like you really want to try to make up for that with, you know, a good quality multivitamin mineral and maybe even do testing to make sure that your nutrients aren't being overly depleted because that's just 
making things worse, you know, if you don't have the vital nutrients for health. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, you could be taking a certain medication and a certain biomarker or nutrient is trending down and you're taking the medication, let's say, for a year or two or three or five years. And that marker has trended down so much that now you start to get ancillary effects, which you may not. You may think, oh, the medication is not working or I need another right. medication when it may just be something simple like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I do think sometimes we just develop side effects from medications down the road and it's hard to it's hard to link it back i mean some doctors have to take their patients off of a couple of medications and and then see how their you know patient comes to them sick and they're on five or six or more medications and then you know obviously this is a doctor's call to try to take them off of medications but sometimes that is helpful to just get the clear picture because they can have I mean, aside from depleting nutrients, they also have side effects. They, you know, they, they really, really can change physiology and it's not always for a good, you know, not always in the right direction. Yeah. I've, in terms of plant medicine, again, I'm, I guess a lot of stuff's coming to mind. So I've heard that some plants, for instance, they can produce chemicals to, you know, confuse ant invaders or to call in predators of ants that would prey on them or some other creature that would prey on them. So the mm-hmm. plants seem to, I mean, seem to be intelligent, you know, for lack of a better word, and can see and hear and, you know, have like a senome where they can interact with their environment. Do you think that plants ever, maybe this is a ridiculous question, make medicine for us somehow? <laughs> Would they, do you well, think they could know that we are their caretaker and therefore make stuff for us? Or like, why would they make these compounds, do you think? Well, you know, I kind of look at it more from an evolutionary perspective, you know. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really neat question, and it gets more into, you know, kind of, uh, you know, more like belief system. And But, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I really kind of tend to look at everything in terms of evolution. But these plants, we have evolved with them for millennia. So... You know, I mean, when they make something like a fruit, well, I mean, fruit's a perfect example, right? We don't think much of it. We just eat the fruit. But plants are totally using us <laughs> to spread their seed all over the earth, you know, and that's through fruits, right? Because when you eat fruit and, and you know, in the old days when we didn't have, you know, plumbing and everything, people would poop out the fruit seeds and that would be like the perfect uh, fertilizer and preparation for that seed to grow into a tree. So plants and humans, I mean, we are very, and I mean, you've probably read a lot about this. I mean, we're, we're very like symbiotic organisms and we've evolved together. And I really, I, in terms of plants making these, what they call secondary metabolites, that is, I believe, something that helps plants survive. And that's why they've made the, these uh, metabolites. And then Many of them happen to benefit us or, you know, or we have helped select for these plants to, to reproduce and evolve and further survive. Because like, for instance, we like apples that are sweet or we like, you know, grapes that are this such a way. Um, and the other piece to this whole like beautiful relationship between plants and humans is the relationship between plants and insects which is vastly more complex and ancient. So really plants and insects are the ones that blew up 
evolution for each other. So as insects were blowing up that, you know, as their, you know, diversity of their species was just blossoming, blasting out, so were plants. And that's where you get lots of different flower types, you know, uh, lots of, I mean, just, I think what's there, like 200,000 species of plants and insects, and I can't quote the number of species of insects, but it's equally very diverse and very rich. And these plants and insects have very, you know, intimate interactions where they help each other, you know, reproduce and survive and pollinate. And I mean, it's just kind of, it's really mind blowing. It's really amazing. Um, well, I was, and, yeah. I was thinking, okay, so how many communities have you been in that use plant medicine? Was it just one, which is enough, but I'm just wondering if you went to other ones. No, I mean, I, I really see people all over the world using plant medicine, but I study, I, I particularly, in Panama, I particularly studied two communities that, you know, that's what I was interested in. But I did work with uh, some anthropologists in Mexico who were studying medicinal plants in Chiapas. So I'm also familiar with, you know, some other communities that were using plant medicine. Well, what I was wondering is, wouldn't it be funny if the pharmacopoeia of the plants that are in, that are local to a given population, you know, do they have a complete set of remedies for that population? And what if that was true? And what if that was true for other populations that you visited? It would kind of be suspiciously coincidental if that was the case, that plants that are local to this population just happen to have, you know, medicines available for, you know, the top 10 ailments they have. Did you see mm-hmm. any of that or have you given thought to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can pretty much safely assume, yeah, I mean, they definitely, but all communities that I mentioned had, you know, the top 10 plants used to treat the the top illnesses, you know, and, and we're talking about the same illnesses that we have, you know, colds, coughs, you know, those, those are the common, you know, stomach aches, these are the common things that bother all of us, they're not serious, but like you, you look for a remedy, you know. Um, but yeah, I think that's true. That's, I think you're right. Well, it's just kind of a, a strange coincidence, if, if that's the case, you know, that's why. Like you were talking about fruits. So fine. Okay. It, it makes sense. You know, the plant would make fruits knowing that creatures would eat the fruits and move around and poop out the seeds and that would fertilize them. But if you think, how would the plant know to do that? Because it's outside of its own body. How would it even know that yeah, there the are plant, creatures but, out there? But how would it know that? It's weird. It, no, it, it, it must have a it must have a, a pretty advanced sense, sensory apparatus to be able to do that. I don't know if you can say plants <laughs> see and hear and but but it must have a pretty advanced sensory apparatus again in order to be able to do that, right? Well, I I mean I know I think the way we talk about it, we make it sound like the plant you know has a brain or has some kind of cognitive function, but really what it is, I mean, my view, you know, is that that plant, you know, that's like, let's go back in evolution, that plant that made that first fruit that kind of tasted like an apple, you know, that, that, let's say that tree that made that first, you know, prototype apple-like fruit. Well, some people came along and found that, or some animals came along and found that and ate it all up. And they went out and they and they distributed the seed all over the earth, all over the land nearby. And, and that, that apple, that prototype apple tree now had, you know, 
a hundred seedlings. So now those seedlings, you know, so I'm really, so then those seedlings were later. Those also had like an apple flavor. Animals liked it. Then they spread the seed further. So that's how those, that animal and plant interaction helps that apple tree, you know, evolve and, and, you know, reproduce and, um, you know, continue and continue and continue on, whereas other trees that were similar would have died off because they didn't have a fruit that had that delicious taste. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's the answer, but uh, I guess these are just the thoughts coming to mind. It's just it's just odd. I wonder why, you know, these things happen. And to me, again, this is just me speaking, my opinion, but uh, it doesn't seem chance alone is enough, but... Uh, you know, random mutation, but again, that's, that's okay. Right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, kind of, I don't know if the word spirituality or belief, I mean, that's where that comes in more, you know, and I think there are, you know, for me being a scientist, I mean, I do personally, you know, have spiritual beliefs too. It's just that I still kind of rely on evolution as the tool that kind of made, made it all come into effect, you know, happen. Um, and so, that's kind of it's I know it's kind of dry and not very exciting but yeah <laughs> that's how okay. I, that's how I it's see okay. it happening yeah yeah again you, just because you've had that first-hand experience you know uh, I, I don't know that's why I wondered and if you've had yeah. experience like well have you had any experiences scientific or not that really just impacted you big time being in those communities or just in your overall studies or clinical work I mean, have you had any experiences that maybe you can explain or can't explain, but regardless, they just had like a big impact. They whacked you in the side of the head and changed how you thought about things. <laughs> um, well, I guess I'll tell you about what's coming to mind, even though I'm not sure it's, it's exactly what, what you're looking for, because it's not really related to the plant, you know, the, the, the track of the conversation that we're having around plants and evolution and humans and insects and everything. But I did have an experience that pretty much turned my way of looking at the world upside down. And um, that was that I had a dear friend who um, she was in cancer treatment and um, you know, we were, we were uh, in communication of course. And um, she, she ended up passing. She didn't survive. uh, She had breast cancer and she didn't survive the treatment. And um, she Basically, I think it was a week or two after she passed, I got a text. I got a text in my phone. It was like a um it was like it I had written it. You know, it was a text like my like it it, it was in that field that you that you type in before you're about to send it. But my phone had right. been locked, you know, my phone had been locked for hours. I hadn't been near my phone and I pick up my phone and it's got a text in it. Um as though I had written it, but it was a text that she had sent me, you know, months earlier. So, and it was a very, you know, it was a very clear, you know, loving message about, you know, she said something to the effect of, you know, I'm doing fine. Um, Please call my husband. It still gives me chills, the story, you know, please call my husband. Sure. I can't, can't remember what she was telling me to tell her husband. And she said, you know, love you BFF or something like that. And I mean, I can't tell you the chills that were rolling through me for hours. (laughs) I I could not explain. You know, I'm a scientist and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, 
other planes of, you know, the other, the other parts uh, that we can't, the parts of the universe that we don't see, you know, and, and taste and touch and feel, you know, I mean, I don't, I do believe that there's more to it, but I don't know what it is exactly. And I could not explain how this happened. And of course I contacted her husband and I told her that I had got basically got felt that I'd gotten a message from her, you know, and that I could not explain how it happened. Yeah. But anyway, it was, it was a game changer for me and it made, just made me realize how, how little I, how little we, any of us really know and that Mm. there's more going on uh, below the surface, but yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to take you maybe that far in the direction, but I just wondered if, <laughs> again, in the, maybe if there's a, I was wondering if there's a more boring science-based story that uh, we, we had the might same reaction, more, though. That might be more along the lines of what we were talking about. Um, well, okay, sometimes yeah. I feel like that, where, where I'll discover something and it's just, I don't know, it just gives me a weird feeling. It's like, how could that be? Science, even yeah. to me, science is uh, is like that a lot of times. So that's why I ask. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to think of something that, I mean, I feel like I, you know, I, I get those a lot. I, I wish I could kind of think of something that's really like, um, you know, kind of like getting hit over the head with a two by four in, in terms of the excitement. I mean, well, let's, let's, let's go there in a, in a, you know, a, a different direction. So, okay, sure. so you mentioned, for instance, insects and how they relate mm-hmm. to plants is amazingly complex and interesting. So what, what are some things you've discovered there that people would like to know about? Yeah, well, um, you know, let's let's take a different topic because insects and plants sure. are not actually my forte. I mean, I think it's totally mind blowing, but I already kind of shared the part that I think is so mind blowing about them. Um, but we could talk, we, you know, I could give you like maybe maybe an example about well, the microbiome and humans, yeah, that's what I was gonna or, say, right. Yeah. I, I haven't asked you about your book. I apologize. So let's let's talk about that. Like, what uh, you wrote a book, heal your oral microbiome. Um, where did that come from? Like, what what prompted you to do that? Yeah. So I have a lot of um, history and background in microbiome testing, stool testing. I you know I've spent a lot of years working for diagnostic laboratories uh, and. You know, back, um, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, one of the companies I worked for pioneered the first uh, stool test that measured the microbes in the gut using DNA analysis. So that was a huge, you know, that was a, a huge step, you know, innovative step. And, um, you know, I had, a, I had a lot of experience looking over tests and understanding the, the gut microbiome in humans, which, of course, a lot of people know about now. It's, you know, kind of old news now. Well, I was given a, a task to write a paper on the oral microbiome from one of my clients. I have, a, I have a health education business and a medical writing business, and that was one of my assignments uh, for one of my clients who does, you know, education for their clients, <laughs> for their uh, physician clients. And uh, it just was amazing. It was amazing because all of the exciting, amazing things that we know about the gut microbiome is reflected and, and similar with the oral microbiome. Although the oral microbiome doesn't get all the, you know, all the press yet. So, um, and I think the oral microbiome. So, I mean, just to lay out a few things that the microbiome does for us, it you know makes vitamins. It helps us digest and absorb food. It calms down inflammation. It 
uh, informs the immune system and helps the immune system kind of learn how to act, you know, who's a bad guy and who's a good guy. Um, I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. And, um, but th- those are some of the most important. It, it helps uh, protect, like actually protect muco- mucosal surfaces of your body from the outside world too. So uh, it helps protect us from pathogens. So, you know, our good bacteria help protect us from uh, infections. And so all of that's also happening in the mouth. And the mouth is so interesting because you're constantly eating and drinking and swallowing the microbes from your mouth into the gut. So it's, I mean, why why haven't we been talking about it all this time? <laughs> it's pretty important. It's yeah, the second, true. yeah, it's the second most biodiverse micro, microbiome in our body, second only to the gut. So the mouth is a pretty interesting so, place to study. Right. So whenever we eat, I wonder, I mean, I wonder a couple of things. So I wonder, you know, we eat and when food's in our mouth, if the, uh, you know, our somatic cells are probably very likely communicating to the rest of our body, hey, there's food, it appears to be of this nature, et cetera, it's here. But then the microbes themselves, I mean, not only are they being entrained in the food and brought into the gut, um, but perhaps they're communicating as well. Like, you know, I've learned that microbes communicate, you know, through the vagus nerve supposedly with the brain. So maybe it's not far-fetched that they would also communicate this way with other microbial populations and let them know you know, what's coming, or maybe just by the fact that they're entrained with the food and they do arrive in the gut, that they can tell the gut, uh, hey, you know, this is what's coming and uh, this is what's here. And here's our, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what no, else to I, say about it, but these are just thoughts. Well, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I can't speak to that. We do know that bacteria have quorum sensing. So, you know, they basically, like a lot of different bacteria can act like an organism together. So they they definitely have the ability to communicate, to share resources. Um, they can say, hey, you know, let's all work together and do and like emit this chemical so that, that those other bugs can't like get rid of us, you know. So um, that's called quorum sensing. But that's one of those just like sci-fi like, um, you know, qualities that microbes have that we've only been talking about for the last 10 years or so. Um, but yeah, so, so the bacteria, microbes come in on the food, but they also live on the teeth, underneath the gums, you know, on the cheeks and the saliva, on the, on the tongue. I mean, there's like, I don't know, five or six different little, uh, ecological niches of microbes in our mouth. It's like very specialized. Um, and so we're swallowing those all day long into the gut as well. Like the ones that are living in our mouths, as well as the ones that are coming in through the food too. Mm. Yeah. How does it, you know, a lot of people talk about dysbiosis, but I don't know, how would a population know that it's the right mix or the wrong mix? You know, from my reading of your book and other books, a very high number have what we would consider to be quote unquote bad bacteria, even in healthy individuals. But because I guess the quote unquote good bacteria are more prevalent in their mix, that they're okay. They don't have dysbiosis. So right. what is dysbiosis? It seems like a community type type thing. And how is it decided? Well, that's an awesome question, Richard, because it's not easy. I mean, I, I think it's a, t- a tough question. I think what, what I would say is that dysbiosis is an imbalance of a person's microbes that that are related to symptoms or illness. 
because you're exactly right. I mean, someone can have dysbiosis on a test, like for instance, a stool test or an oral microbiome test, and they may have they may have great health. You know, they may be feeling great and have no symptoms. In which case, you would say that people can have dysbiosis. They they can have uh, a test, for example, that shows they have dysbiosis, like a stool test or an oral oral microbiome test that shows they have this microbial dysbiosis on paper, but if they have no symptoms at all and they're feeling great, then I would not call that dysbiosis, you know? Um, And it's tricky because if you have a great, healthy microbiome, then you are going to be protected from pathogens. And we know that there are plenty of healthy people walking around with pathogens in their mouth or in their gut, and they're not having any trouble because their good good bacteria are protecting them. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing is is anyone doing um, a study where they would let's say swab someone's mouth before and after they eat, and then in the day and in the night to see diurnal variation, and then over a period of weeks or months to see the change in their you know their oral microbiome, for instance, because it's very accessible. Yeah. Has that kind of thing been done? Yeah, some of it has. I mean, you know, I think the research is still in its infancy, but like, for instance, they've done studies where they say, okay, let's do look at the oral microbiome of these people, and then let's have them not brush their teeth for 10 days, and let's look at their oral microbiome again, you know? Um, and of course, it's a big mess. It's a big mess. <laughs> so, because bacteria are going to overgrow in that situation. So, um, yeah, there are there are studies looking at that. I mean, you know, the famous um, microbe called Streptococcus mutans. That's one that we have been. You know, it's kind of infamously responsible for cavities. And so there are studies that will show that if people chew up probiotics in their mouth, that bacteria will go down. So they'll test them beforehand. They'll test them after afterwards, and they'll find that the bacteria that like that makes is it is partly responsible for cavities will decrease, for example. So um, we do have some studies, but not, you know, not as much as we might like. Yeah, it's just weird. I don't know how the microbial community in a given area has a sense of self as it seems to. I mean, beyond quorum sensing, this seems like more to me. Mm-hmm. How would you know that, you know, these, I don't know, 12 species are the front runners are the most predominant. Yeah, we have these other ones, but there are very few of them. and we prefer as a community to keep those, you know, to low levels. Yeah. And the the community seems to, again, have a sense of that. Otherwise, why would it be sustainable for, you know, a long period of time and, and come along with health of that organism? The organisms seem to have preferred states and so do their microbial communities. And what, I mean, if, if let's say if you looked at the oral microbiome of the tongue of a thousand people, you know, how different would it be? And if it is pretty similar why that particular mix and why does that constitute health? Yeah, I mean, that's a good, those are good questions. And what we, what we know about, like in that scenario that you mentioned, like looking at the microbiome of, of a, a thousand people uh, their, of the tongue, they will all be different. So there's a, lot of vari- there's a lot of variability, one person to the next. But the core microbes that are present, like the actual 
you know, microbes that are there will be similar. Like, for instance, you know, microbe A, B, and C will be present on all a thousand people, but in different amounts, for example, like that. And then, and then there will be some that will be unique, you know, so the core players are common throughout like everybody, you know, and then, but then there's a lot of variety, so much variety that we really can't say what's a healthy, like what does a healthy result look like? And it's the same for the gut microbiome. It's the same for the gut microbiome. And there's a lot more research on that, but we can't just say, oh, this is a healthy gut microbiome. You know, everyone should try to go for this. Well, that's not true. We can't say that because there's a lot of unique variability, one person to the next. Well, what if we were to, uh, again, sample someone's oral microbiome, you know, a whole bunch of times when they're healthy, and then when they get sick, sample it again and look for the differences? Maybe yeah, that would that be a would... way to, to see, okay, if we restore right. this and that and change these numbers back, then that they were fine before, they should be okay now. Yes, exactly. And what I encourage people to do is to, you know, I think what what we're moving forward, I know this podcast is about, you know, future and technology and, um, you know, optimizing health. And But one of the things I think we're moving toward with testing is using ourselves as a baseline. And that really, you know, we should test ourselves when we're in our 20s in, quote, top health, <laughs> And then, you know, compare as we age and as we develop health problems, then test ourselves and compare it to the baseline that was done at the top of health. So I think that, you know, that's where we're going. That's where we should go because of all the variability from one human being to another and the variability of their microbiome and, you know, genetics and all, you know, all of these factors that, uh, influence our, our our health status. So kind yeah, of using ourselves, good. using ourselves as our own measuring stick. You know. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's weird, and it seems like once we get to a, a stable configuration of a given population, uh, we have a resistance to to that population changing. Right. You mean like a you microbial know, population? Right. Right. Yeah. Like if you know, if my mouth has uh, you know X numbers of bacteria in these amounts. It tends to stay that way from what I understand. It has a stability to it for some reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It will stay that way unless you take medication, unless you change your diet. Um, and, and, you know, there's a few other things like pH. You know, if a few things change, it can really shift the microbiome. But if most things stay the same, then it, it, it's very stable. Obviously, antibiotics can wipe things out. Right. It's just interesting that it's that it. it you know, that it's stable in the first place. Why is it stable? Yeah. You know, I know these are very difficult questions, but it's just interesting well, yeah. that it can do such a thing. It is. It's fascinating. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we were talking about kind of this ancient relationship between, you know, plants and insects and human and plants. Well, humans and bacteria, that's an ancient one. <laughs> that's a very ancient, you know, relationship. So, um, yeah, bacteria probably figured this out like, you know, a billion years ago <laughs> because they, yeah. they were on the planet three billion years before we were. So they had a, yeah, a good head start on, you know, figuring out how to keep their community stable and how to, 
take hold and not let go, you know, and not get washed away or brushed away or, you know, to ha- how to stick. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, well, I guess there's a million more questions I could ask you, but we're getting close <laughs> to running out of time. So what, we didn't cover this very much, but I guess you're doing uh, naturopathic consulting or, sorry, uh, functional medicine consulting right now. Can you just, you know, uh, give a call to action for people that want to learn more and maybe get in touch and get help from you personally, if that's available? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I do, you know, I do medical writing and medical education. My company is healthfirstconsulting.com, healthfirstconsulting.com. And, um, you know, I do, con- I do consulting, obviously, on test results if people want, uh, you know, a one-on-one call about their test results and action items. So yeah, I would love for people to reach out. Um, my e- my email is cassnelsondooley at gmail dot com. C a s s n e l s o n d o o l e y dot com, and uh, I, I sorry at gmail dot com. And um, yeah, just would would be interested in in uh, you know, like I said, the main focus of my work is to improve health worldwide. So I'm. Uh, interested in doing that in a lot of different ways. I also have pa- patient education videos. I have videos on my website related to leaky gut and stool testing and food sensitivity testing for educational purposes too. That's great. Well, Cass, thanks for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.